This is George Fox Talks Theology, and today we are talking about the Old Testament and the Bible, and particularly, is it about to die? Hello, wonderful George Fox Talks fans and audience out there. My name is Brian Doak. I'm the vice president of George Fox Digital, and I'm also a professor of biblical studies here at George Fox University. I'm your host today for this theology episode. I am so excited to have Brent Strawn here <laughs> in the studio. Um, Dr. Strawn, what a pleasure. Can I just introduce you with all of your accolades? Oh, please. Can I just list them? Please, say if them? you would. I'm just going to read your whole bio page here. <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm ready. Not. No, please but don't. Professor Strawn is the D. Moody Smith Distinguished Professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School and Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law. Did I say that correctly? That's correct. I mean, so it's like you're a pr law professor and... In a divinity school? This is uh, how did that happen? I, this is a, an interesting thing, but yeah, I have a secondary appointment in the law school. That's that is super amazing. So you can like teach about like <laughs> biblical law because the Bible does have a bunch of That's laws right. in it, which That's are right. also interesting to people. Okay, but I mean, the books that 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 this scholar has written are truly amazing. What is stronger than a lion? Leonine image and metaphor in the Hebrew Bible in the ancient Near East. Bestseller. Totally at Walmart paperback. Get there now. I mean, this one, uh, the Old Testament is dying, a diagnosis and rec recommended treatment. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Because that just sounds like that's really interesting. Um, lies my preacher told me. That's a scandalous title. It that's, is that's kind of. I had to apologize title. to a lot of former pastors. I can, <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you have to talk to pastors? Because... Because you're yeah. you're a church going man, I am, and, and I, you so, have yeah. to you have to come in under uh, under scrutiny for saying That's lies. True. My preacher told I me. Know. Okay. I did feel bad. I did say in the preface that I've actually been the good fortune of sitting under many fine preachers. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't personal. I want to come back to that question though, because that is something people ask me as a biblical scholar. I want to mention this book though too, 2021, uh, um, Honest to God Preaching, Talking Sin, Suffering, and Violence. Yeah, seems like you've really written some amazing works. Um, you know, for the church. I mean, you're doing this heavy scholarship stuff but you're also empowering people who preach about the Bible to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, is this, has, so. has that come naturally to you as a scholar to like go back and forth between those genres or those approaches? Um, I don't, I think so. I mean, I think it's reflects my kind of my, who I am, my personality, my heart, mm -hmm. passion, whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do think some people are inclined more one way than the other mm -hmm. <clears throat> when they think about their scholarly profiles, you know, some are more technical and then yeah. some are more popular. And, and I think I found both of them equally sort of interesting and, yeah. and trying to achieve, you know, some sort of standard of excellence in each one is, is kind of a invigorating, right. you know? And so, um, not that I've attained all that or, you know, in the words, not of that I have attained, as not Paul. that I've attained as, as St. Paul. Yeah. But, How but it, no, go ahead. But I was just going to say, I think uh, I, people I've really respected in my career and some of whom ended up as my teachers or good friends mm -hmm. um, have have had that dual aspect to them. Right. And I think that was they, they set me then a model to try to wow. uh, uh, attain to as well. Yeah. How'd you get into academic biblical studies as a, as a career? Well, I was uh, <laughs> raised in the church and I thought I would... Um, I actually felt called to ministry as a young young boy. I preached my first sermon when I was thirteen. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whoa! How did it, how did it go? Uh, it was genius. Um, <laughs> I, as I recall, it was a, not no small revival. Uh, 
maybe you've heard of it. No, actually. (laughs) (laughs) He kicked off. He started a movement. I I started a movement, but other than that, it's it's hard to say. It was fine. It's obscure, but but important. I I think it was probably dreadful, but but they let let me do it. It was Youth Sunday. It was Youth Sunday, you know. That's amazing. And uh, so I thought I would be a parish minister, actually, and so I went to college, and I was a religion major and Bible major, but I had this... It's really great Bible professors at Point Loma Nazarene College at that time, university now. And uh, one of them said to me after I'd taken my mandatory two years of Greek, because that's what they offered and that was what Bible uh, majors had to take. Right. He said, I'm cobbling together a group for Hebrew. Would you, would you take Hebrew? Wow. And I'm like, this is a fateful choice because there's Hebrew or there's systematic theology. Wow. What would you do? Wow. Hebrew, of course. It was a fateful choice. I mean, you know, so I'm not. Presbyterian, but if I was, it would have been predestined. Wow. I was I'm Wesleyan, so it was kind yeah. of fortuitous. Yeah, that's it was right. Kind of a serendipity. It was a, it was a, yeah, I did. I chose Hebrew, and then that same professor said to me, uh, "I think you should write a thesis project." And I was like, "Okay." And then he said, "I think you should write it on the prophets." And I said, "Okay." And he said, "I think you should write it on the prophetic call narratives, and you should try to use your Hebrew that you're learning." And I thought, yeah. "Okay." Yeah. And I did, and I wrote this 150 page thesis, and I fell in love with the footnote. Wow! And uh, he it's, told it's me, all over. From it's there. all over. And once you get into the footnote, it, they, once you, ain't you going fall back. in love with a perfect footnote, there's hardly oh. anything better. Oh. I mean, a perfect footnote Just is the layers, the leveling. Yeah. What it provides. What. What doesn't it provide, we might ask? I couldn't even say. So he kind of planted the seed. And, and as I went off to seminary, he said to me, well, you know, if you if you think about it, if you really want to and you have the stamina, he said, maybe you should think about a PhD and just yeah. go straight rather mm-hmm. than go into the parish for a while and then try to come back. And mm-hmm. so he really kind of planted that seed in a lot of ways. And um, and when I went off to seminary, I just found myself in one of the great Bible departments in the country. Wow. And particularly in Old Testament, wow. extra strong. And at, they just sort of sucked me At in. Princeton Seminary. Yeah, that's right. I had nine Old Testament professors at that time when I was Oh, there. that was a golden age. It was a golden age. And so I just, you know, I just, it was the great undiscovered country because yeah. the Bible was, I grew up in church, but the Old Testament was kind of just neglected, not not malevolently. It's kind of benign neglect is what I call it. So it's kind of unknown yeah. country and just fascinating. And they introduced me to the ancient Near East and the languages and further and further, further back. And yeah. I just got, sucked into it and and just started uh, falling in love with it and pursuing it. That's actually an amazing story and echoes a, a lot of things I've heard people say who have gotten into Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, including my own story, which mm. is not one of some very self-conscious, momentous choice, right. but really through the language. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing the same thing. I It was like, you know, they would offer Hebrew or Greek in alternating yes. years. And the year I came in was just the Hebrew year. Okay. And I started taking it. And I was like, after one week, I was like, I can't do this. Mm. I can't do this. Mm. And I ended up sitting at a table with a young woman that I didn't even know who was also a biblical studies major. And I was okay. like, I can't do this. And she was like, she was like, no, you have to. Because if you don't do this, this is I transferred. So okay. as a junior, she's like, if you don't do this now, you'll have to take Greek as a senior. And what if you don't do well? Then what are you going to do then? Then oh, you can't graduate. True. And I was like, that is really great advice. And she's like, you can do it. People always say this with Hebrew. Right. Just hang in there. Yeah. First week. And I said to her, I was like, you know, I wish someone like you would just like follow me around for the rest of my life and give me (laughs) advice like this. That is not my wife. I kid you not. There, we got married later. Really? Not based on that exactly, but that, that is a true story. That is amazing. That <laughs> so is anyway, amazing but story. I bring that up to say, I mean, as I heard you tell that story, it's kind of like one thing leads to another in this this corpus, the Old Testament. Yeah. It just like lures you in yeah, with this depth of like, do you have, I mean, I know this is a very simple question for a biblical scholar, but like, what's your favorite Bible story? Oof. 
favorite Bible story. That's so hard. You could even say a favorite if it's like too much pressure, like picking a favorite oh, child. Like a favorite. Well, yeah. it's kind of like when people say to me, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, how can you ask me that? I'm offended. But, a. but it's a thing that people want to ask a biblical scholar. I know. But I always say, well, and I don't, you know, I always say, you got to give me top five is okay. what I say. Okay. So top five books, I, you know, easy. <laughs> Exodus, Deuteronomy, <laughs> Psalms, Amos, and... Uh, and Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. Oh, Amos doesn't really make those lists very much. I know. I wouldn't think. Why, Amos, why Amos for you? Well, I just find Amos, you know, here, here's the thing, right? If in Old Testament, in the Bible, but, but people who frequently, I think, think that the wrath and judgment of God only lives in the Old Testament. It lives in the New Testament right. too, but let's just hypothetically say it is a, po a major trope in the Old Testament. Right, right. And I just think Amos is really this super articulate prophet of judgment, and he helps us think through that theology of mm -hmm. judgment and wrath. And so if you can think through Amos and figure it out there, then everything else is kind of child's play. Wow. Um, I like that so, approach. Yeah. So Amos is, I think, fascinating. And uh, I, I taught it, you know, as I was a TA for one of my profs at Princeton and Amos mm -hmm. early on. And so that kind of stuck with me because mm -hmm. I did that granular work. Uh, mm -hmm. in and Amos, Amos has the famous speech that, that Martin Luther King Jr. quoted in the speech, let justice That's right. roll, roll down. down. That's right. And, um, you know, probably as we get further and further from that kind of biblical literacy, you might say people don't even recognize how... That's right. I just preached on that passage at my church oh, this really? Sunday. And oh, um, they're doing a, a Lenten series on Amos, believe it or not. Wow. And uh, the pastor gave me chapter five. And I did see a poll one time that people were asked who said that, and most people said it was MLK. They didn't realize that wow. MLK was quoting wow. Amos. Yeah, that's an amazing piece of reception history in terms of the the preach the preaching voice becoming scripture. That's right. Yeah, um, for people, yeah, Bart would like that. Probably. I, I, you, you, let me ask you this about just putting my toe deeper into these waters. Do you, do you see how definitely I avoided the favorite Bible story? I, I, I do love that. I'm, I'm going to let you get away with it. <laughs> okay, I'm not even going to follow up thank on you. that. Thank I'm, just, you. And do you I'm see not a narrative guy too much either. How, I'm more of a poetry guy. And do you see so how definitely I'm just pivoting to I know, the next I thing? I'm just, that. I'm going to pivot. I'm just going to let you get away with okay, that. Okay, thank you. But you did say favorite books. And that was, that was pretty good. Yeah. I wonder if I could inch further deeper into the waters of what it's like to be a biblical scholar in your experience. And you've obviously been practicing this at a very high level. It's kind of a big cultural level question and we can use it as a way to unpack some other things. But I have a sense vaguely, I'm being a little sarcastic, that <laughs> there's this, there's a kind of movement. There's a thing that's kind of like, it's, it's inherent maybe even to the American experience. And this is anti-intellectualism. Uh, I mean, we got our start as a country by saying no to an elite monarchy. Mm -hmm. 1776, no, we're not going to do your elitist stuff. Mm. We're just going to live on our farms and have a revolutionary war and, you know, <laughs> confront each other directly. Right, like right. there's, there's something kind of built in, you know, something obviously very complicated here that people mm -hmm. have spoken about and written about, but I wonder how this plays out in terms of biblical scholarships, because the United States as a country, and even before America was America, you have this deep, deep connection to the Bible mm -hmm. and even to the old Testament mm -hmm. and to those stories. And yet as people, and yet on the, so the idea of being a biblical scholar should be something that would be a, a, a vaunted profession. Mm. And yet there's a kind of like, I don't know, a kind of populism or a kind of mm -hmm. disrespect that sometimes one sees for the work of biblical scholarship. Like it's maybe too fancy or it's too progressive or mm. it's too liberal or it, mm. it doesn't treat the Bible seriously or it makes a mockery of faith. Mm. I guess like, do you perceive that that's true? That people, that there's a kind of anti-intellectual resistance to biblical scholarship? Or do you find that, mm -hmm. no, that's not quite true? Or, or how, how would you characterize that? Well, I think it can be true for sure. I think certain circles, that is the case. In other circles, not the case. 
I do think that, you know, in our present cultural moment, social media and other types of similar platforms let everyone be an expert mm -hmm. even when they're not and mm -hmm. everyone voice count equally, mm -hmm. even though it shouldn't in right. certain technical areas. Right. Um, you know, I think if we looked at the, you know, those, those moments in, in American history, like you talked about this, people who gave us the constitution and stuff were hardly, um, non, non anti-intellectual. I mean, they're smart as all get out. They were and high class. The crafters, yep. you know, were geniuses yep. and the things they, they put together in the constitution, et cetera. But I do think, um, I do think there's, there's, I, maybe it's related. I, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I think it's, there's a curious sort of, um, maybe it's baggage that goes with the biblical studies guild in that it's been dominated for a long time by really technical approaches, mm -hmm. philological, mm -hmm. historical, whatever. So you kind of have to be an expert to play in that arena mm -hmm. at that level. And that is can quickly be kind of super jargonistic mm -hmm. and far removed from the average person. Mm -hmm. And the people who sometimes become experts in jargon then don't know how to speak in non-jargon. And so right. then, then they can't communicate their findings. And then you do have the whole kind of pietistic thing going on too, where, well, I can just read the Bible on my own and I don't need someone to tell me. Right, right. And so, you know, I do think there's, there's pockets of Christianity that, that are sort of anti-intellectual that don't want to hear from Bible scholars. And sometimes the Bible scholars in question may have sort of created such a, such a outcome, you know, by being right. too technical to not be right. approachable, to not be, um, you know, talking, in language that everyone understands to and to be not helpful towards matters of faith. But then there's other scholars, of course, who've done that their whole careers and yeah. have, have constantly been doing that. And those are kinds of people that do deserve to be heard, right. even by people who might be skeptical otherwise. So I wonder if that's a little bit of the heritage of the, the dominance of historical, mm -hmm. critical, philological approaches that have, you know, it's started to change in recent years towards other types of approaches and and, and thinking. In my own experience, I don't think these have to be separated. I'd try not to bifurcate them. I think the highest mm -hmm. levels of scholarship and philology and history can be in profound service to the theology of Scripture and, yeah. and its utility in the church. Um, but I have to admit that not everyone I've taught with in my you know, career would agree, <laughs> and not everyone in the guild that we right, belong right. to would agree. And so, you know, I, I'm both... I'm both sad about intellectualism and I also sort of can kind of understand it to a degree. Does that make sense? It does. I think one thing that's very complicated for biblical scholars, I don't know how to quite put it without, you know, categorizing large groups of people in a very particular way, mm. all of us as biblical scholars. But I think one thing that happens to us when we go through the education that we have, we come to have very complicated faith stories. Yeah. And we come to have a very complicated relationship with the text. It's yep. often one of deep, deep devotion, but it can also be one of pain mm -hmm. of being, um, not, you know, of having our questions, even our very just genuine faithful questions not accepted in the community of faith, right, right. which can lead one to a retreat in yeah. these kinds of settings. And yeah, there can be painful so. experiences where, you know, there's, there's, there's a mismatch there mm -hmm. and either the kind of scholarly side won't submit to, you know, the community of faith or the community of faith won't learn from scholars. Yeah, that's a real, that's well put. I sometimes think about it with my, in my uh, seminary classes with reference to, um, you know, difficult texts and scripture and whatnot as, mm -hmm. as, you know, akin to being a priest in ancient Israel. I mean, every, the priests need to know 
everything. I mean, they are like the technical experts. And so of course they're going to know like the squishy spots, right? Right, I mean, they, they have to, they have to know what's like, what works well and kind of what, you know, what doesn't work well, you know, they, they, so students, you know, people who are devoted to scripture should know all of the ins and outs, nooks and crannies. And some of the crannies and nooks are going to be disconcerting or troubling or whatever, but they have to know them because they're priests, you know, and theoretically though, and, and not theoretically really in actuality, the priest knows all that in order to be a better servant mm-hmm. of of God's people and, and God and, and, and mediator between them. So, you know, all that stuff, the complications, I think you put it is so, so right. That actually can be a productive, positive thing in the end, not just something that's sort of a drag or, or, right. or to be, or to be, you know, negotiated or fixed right. somehow. Right. Right. But it is delicate though. That's right. But it is delicate and re- it requires people to show each other grace in these kinds of settings and acceptance mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. And, and learning and also mm-hmm. humility and all this kind of stuff. That's right. Speaking of church, I wonder, one question people have asked me throughout the years a lot when they learn I'm a biblical scholar and that I go to church, one question, that. One, yeah, one question that they ask <laughs> is, I want to ask to you, which is like, do you find it hard to listen to preaching? Especially, <laughs> I mean, but seriously, like, you know, having worked with the text in this mm-hmm. way, do you, do you sit like cringing in your seat, like more than the average person? <laughs> I'll tell you what my answer is first. I'll just, I'll answer first rather than putting you okay, on the spot okay. and say, I actually, and I believe this is true, not just a pious answer. Like I feel an enormous sympathy mm. more because I'm like, oh yeah, that's really hard to mm, try to yeah. talk about it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I probably cringe like everybody else does. I mean, everybody has cringeworthy moments mm-hmm, and that's, mm-hmm. that's part of the give and take. But I also feel like if you teach, I think yeah. you know how hard it is, but, but point. I get, but I get why people yeah. ask that because yeah. you're kind of sitting there with this space yeah. of knowledge, with language, you hear someone butcher the pronunciation of yeah. a Hebrew word. You're like, don't <laughs> right. do that. You know, or that kind of thing. put it that way. Quite yeah. That way. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think? What's I been think, your experience? So I like how you put that. The sympathy, I'd say the sympathy I feel after having worked on a couple translation projects, the sympathy I feel is with that with translators. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So Say more people, about that. Well, when people stand, like, you, know, you know, this, like, you know, someone takes a, a semester, they're in, they're in, they're in Hebrew for a couple of weeks and they're suddenly like, you know, taking pot shots at the new revised standard version. <laughs> oh, they don't know what they're doing. There's that's always not something. What, that's yeah. not what that word means. Yeah. And it's like, well, actually, if you have to actually translate the Bible for public consumption in a committee, I mean, it is not easy work. So I feel oh, an, enormous amounts of sympathy and sort of respect for translators. Um, yeah. And that's from from my work on the Common English Bible mostly, but mm. but as far as church going, I do think it's an occupational hazard for anybody who, you know, goes to studies theology is that you know some things and that complicates matters, you know. So, I don't think I'm necessarily cringing, but I do think um you know, there's often times where I would put things differently and and wonder if it might have been better to have put it differently, not right. just me personally, but yeah, yeah. in general. But I think uh, one thing that I sort of decided not too far into my married life, especially once we had kids, was that you know my family needed to decide where we were going to go to church because uh, I go to church every day. Yep. <laughs> I think about yep. God all the time right? and right? scripture all the time. Right? That's I get paid to do it. And so I really wanted to go where my family, where my wife and kids felt, you know, God and they were, they were learning about scripture and they were loving, uh, the Lord more that that's where we needed to go because I was, you know, teaching, I was reading, yeah. I was going to chapel, yeah. I was taking Eucharist. I mean, all kinds of these <laughs> things, multiple times, multiple right. times a week. Right. And so, uh, but I, I think it is a kind of job hazard and it's not all bad, but I, I'm going to think about it differently now that you've said that you feel sympathy. I think that's well put. 
Yeah. Well, and maybe it's me trying to strain toward my better angels and to, you know, control those kinds of <laughs> did things. Did your wife that, tell you to do that too? Yes. Yes, yes okay. she did. Okay. She told me, <laughs> embrace the better angels. <laughs> One of the reasons we have Professor Strawn here on campus today, um, besides just to come and share with us, is to talk about his book, The Old Testament is Dying. And I wonder if we could pivot to that. And I, I wonder if I could ask you a couple of questions about that yeah, book. Please. It came out in 2017. Really worth reading because I think it taps into a lot of things our listeners will be interested in, like, you know, very basic ideas about the loss of biblical literacy mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. our world today and things like that. Um, I mean, so the title itself, The Old Testament is Dying, already tells a story like this is yeah. something that needs to be recovered. Yeah. I mean, what would you say, like, what's 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 your sort of elevator pitch to people who said, oh, well, people don't know as much about the Old Testament. At least we have the New Testament. Yeah. That's the part where Jesus is like, yeah. who cares if the Old Testament is dying? It's not really going to die. And if we don't right. read it, it's really not that big of a deal because we get what we need through the New Testament. Right. Oh, that's well, several important big questions in there that I try to take up in various ways in the book. Yeah. I think... Um, for me, the issue is I do I I've heard forever about literacy and you know being a seminary professor it's like oh students aren't biblically literate anymore right, but and right. as if like in 1950 they were I mean I don't know if they were or not but yeah but you know for for me the book is less about literacy than about mortality mm-hmm. and so it is a medical metaphor that the Old Testament is kind of patient and sick and everything mm-hmm. and you can test for what pathology it has and mm-hmm. run it through some diagnoses and come up with a with a, a treatment plan, um, but it really operates with this uh, a linguistic analogy mm. that the Bible is like a language and faith is like a language that we can learn well and speak mm-hmm. or we can not learn and not speak. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that analogy, which is, you know, has been spoken about by by various people mm-hmm. is really in my mind generative because mm-hmm. um you can then start looking at languages real languages and languages can die in the drop of a hat i mean and they do they, they, they do i they, mean most languages that have ever existed are probably not that's right. living languages anymore no right? that's right and we got about six thousand spoken languages in the world today and most linguists say we'll have 90 percent reduction by the end of the century wow so 600 surviving and there's all kinds of reasons for that blah blah yeah. blah but if the bible of christian faith in, in scripture is like a language then, you know, you have to learn it. And learning a language is hard. And also that means if we have to learn a language, what's our first language, right? Right. (laughs) So all these really interesting questions are coming up. So I do think actually the Old Testament can die. And I got some fairly, I think, decent data to support that. I mean, one is that for Protestants, a significant portion of the Old Testament died in the Reformation Mm. with the elimination of the Apocrypha from Protestant canons. Wow. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of text that was a part of a lot of Christian experience, poof, gone mm-hmm. almost overnight with the Reformation when Luther decides not to include that in his Bible. Um, so it can happen. I think New Testament-only Bibles are another example of the Old Testament's decline. That I people have seen these, yeah. can actually New think, Testament and the Psalms. Of you course, you got to have the Psalms. Psalms I rest my case, yeah, right? I rest put, my case. Get them in there. That shows that the New Testament doesn't have everything you need, because right. you need the Psalms at right. least, right? Right. So... Um, so I think that's some of some of what I was uh, going to say in response. Like, there was another question, though, you asked that I was going to say. That's okay. I, I did that terrible thing where people layer on like that's six right. questions that's in a row. Good. I mean, you basically, I'm, I'm kind of just giving some of the high points of the book, or at least I, as I saw it, like you kind of take several groups to task for contributing to this that's decline. Right. I mean, you have this like new atheist attack on like, isn't this terrible? Yeah, all the right, violence. Right, right. Okay. There probably aren't too many new atheists here listening. Mm-hmm. So we'll leave that alone. Yeah, you also right. have this group. I think you call happyologists. That's right. The happy, kind of like a prosperity thing, which is like all this bad stuff. Let's just like, look the other way. Yeah, that's well, right, just that's part right. of like some old mean God. It's not really our God. The third group though, is the one that I think is, is the most, is the scariest mm. to me as, as a person, mm. as a scholar, as a Christian, because it seems the most likely 
to really like actually be a problem for mm. us, for mm. anyone listening, which mm. is this this thing you call a neo-Marcionite yeah, yeah. critique. Describe what you mean by that. Like who is Marcion and what is the neo-Marcionite yeah. angle today? Okay, I will. But before I remembered the one thing I was gonna oh, circle back to, one, which was, one of the layered questions. if okay, the Old Testament it. dies, I say this in the book a yeah. number of times, the New Testament's not far behind. Uh, the same situations, the same problems that beset yes, yes. the survival of the Old Testament as a language of faith beset the New Testament. Yes. And so if the Old Testament dies, the New Testament just, it will take a little longer, but it won't be far behind. And the church had a chance to cut cut the Old Testament off if it had wanted to do so. And that's a perfect segue back Chose to Marcion, not right? to do it. That's because, right. Marcion yeah. was this arch-heretic, second century. He said we should get, get rid of the Old Testament. New Testament was superior. New Testament refuted all that. Mm -hmm. uh, his One of his big books was the Antitheses. And so mm -hmm. the Antitheses were all the opposite things the New Testament said that were superior to the Old Testament. So this is early on, the church has this option. Yeah. I mean, this guy's a good preacher. Mm -hmm. He was inspired Bible study. His his churches lasted for centuries. Mm -hmm. I think his ghost is as strong as ever wow. and just lurks the hallways of most churches. And Actually, that example, I think, is really, really revealing per the point you just made, because Marcion not only cut out the Old Testament, his New Testament wasn't even <laughs> quite right. the New Testament That's either, right. though. That's but right. to that point that if you lose the old, you might actually lose the new That's as well. That's right. He didn't. He couldn't handle all four Gospels. He just went with one. He mm -hmm. couldn't handle all of that. It was Luke. Mm -hmm. He had to edit it down. He didn't mm -hmm. all the epistles of Paul, just some. He had to edit them down. Anything that was too Old Testament-ish. In other words, the New Testament couldn't survive the surgery when trying to extricate the Old Testament out of it. So right. it does show that if the Old Testament dies, the New Testament dies with it. And the church has this chance and the church said, no, thank you, Marcion. You're just really wrong on all sorts of levels. All kinds of problems happen to your theology, your Christology, your understanding of creation, your understanding of salvation. All of it goes awry if you don't have the Old Testament. And so, um, and that's second century. And so why is Marcion still around, floating yeah. around? It's stunning to me. Why, why, why is that? Like, why, why, why would anyone embrace a view like this today? It seems so obvious. Mm. Is, is it is it practical? Like, because the Old Testament is mm. like 76% by volume, give or take, not including the Apocrypha of yeah. the Bible. Give or take, give or take. But is it, is it because it's, I mean, I found this with students and teaching. It's like, it's really hard for mm. some people just to read it. Is it a practical mm -hmm. thing? Mm -hmm. Is it because of preaching? Like do preachers, there's this enormous pressure in churches to put butts in the seats. Mm -hmm. And is there a feeling like somehow the Old Testament just doesn't do it? Like it doesn't get to the payoff quickly enough? Or like, why, yeah. like what happens? I don't know, because I just think the more you know the Old Testament, just the richness of it to me is, you know, um, it's stunning. I mean, um, Bonhoeffer said, you know, in my mind, he said this in his letters and papers from prison, it's, it's not Christian to take our thoughts and feelings too directly from the New Testament. Oh, um, wow. And, uh, or Philip Yancey said in one of his books about the Old Testament, you know, that once he started got, getting over his initial resistance to it, he found in it things that the New Testament wasn't giving him, things that he really needed. Wow. And so I think that, that dichotomy is a false one. But I do mm. think the difficulty of the Old Testament as as a whole, meaning that it's just large and unwieldy. And again, it's mostly un, undiscovered country for people. Mm -hmm. There is a favoritism of the New Testament in the pulpit. And if that's constantly the case, and if all the adult ed and all the children's curriculum and everything is geared toward the New Testament, you're you're actually contributing to the decline of the Old Testament. It's not a symptom. You're a direct cause of it. Yeah. And so um, 
that is going to only create more and more lack of familiarity, maybe lack of trust mm-hmm. and inability to access, inability to understand. And for in my mind, actually, I think um, the book goes into greater detail on this, of course. In my mind, the problems that people experience with the Old Testament, they're also probably have with the New Testament. So they really don't know the New Testament right. either. They I just know it. little snippets here and there. And if they their beef with the Old Testament, it actually lives in the New Testament too. If and so it really when oftentimes when people tell me, oh, I got this problem with violence in the Old Testament, I'm like, oh man, you just clearly don't read the New Testament. Yeah, either, G- Jesus you? coming in with a sword coming out of his mouth <laughs> in a right. robe dipped in blood to that's, slay the nations. That's there's in the Book that. of Revelation. That's I mean, right. Yeah, that's one thing. That's um, one thing. <laughs> How, let me ask a combative question here, and we got to. Mm. We I have this feeling like we could go on forever. We have to draw this to a close at some point. What would what would you say to someone who said, "Ha, fancy professor from Duke, you mm. and your law school." Here's <laughs> here's the reason. This, happens a lot, this is actually. what they would say. Okay, here's the it's reason. My, it's my family members actually. Used to oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> that's a com- that's a common problem for biblical scholars. You have to face this that's persecution. Right, face the yes. What if someone said, "Here's the reason why the Old Testament is dying. It's because progressive liberals have ruined it by failing to uphold." the literal historicity of the text Mm. and they've given so much ground and what we really need to return it to life is a robust affirmation, like, like historically speaking, like fundamentalist style Mm. of the history and the literal inerrancy of the entire thing. Mm. What would you say to a charge like that? Mm. Like that that's the actual problem why it's dying is because we've, we've given up the faith in a sense and we don't believe it like we used to. Mm. Well, I think again, there's multiple issues there and multiple angles of, of address, I suppose it's, it's since it's, presented as a combative situation. Yeah. I, I take it as my charge to make it combative. I'll, I'll make it a little combative. So. Oh, no, that's good. Yeah. I think what I would say is that I just, um, the way we think about scripture, our theology of scripture needs to be at least somewhat in some sort of level of coherence with what scripture actually is or how it presents. Right. And scripture just does not present uniformly as a history record of right. ancient Israel. Right. Some of it does, and some of it doesn't, and a lot of it doesn't. And what the church has found to be most significant in its spiritual life through the ages is oftentimes those parts that don't present as such, mm. namely the Psalms, mm. or something like the Song of Solomon, which no one reads now except junior high school boys. Song of Solomon <laughs> has been you know, a robust place of rich allegorical, figural, metaphorical interpretation about the love of God in Israel, the love of Christ in the church. So in point of fact, you know, the kind of reading that's simply about facticity or Mm -hmm. something like falsifiability, you know, um, verifiability, that's really a modern conceit. I mean, that's really Mm. post-Enlightenment, post-18th, 19th century rationalism kind of stuff. The early church didn't think about the Bible like that. They mm-hmm. thought about the Bible as something more emically, uh, you know, self-presented as the Word of God, as a address to 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 the people of God. As Paul says, these things were not written for them; it was written for us, mm-hmm. or also for us. Mm-hmm. But sometimes just for us. They're written for all. All of these things are written for our instruction. Wow. Paul's not like looking at you know, could he line up in David and what year was it? It was Tuesday on the. 24th that he wrote right. Psalm 14 or, right. or no, he was, he's, these things were written for us on, on, on whom the end of ages have come. You know, he's just applying all that. Mm-hmm. And I think that immediacy is what matters. And that immediacy for a lot of people, in my humble opinion, has nothing to do with history, has everything to do with how the text is presented. And in some ways, poetry, 
uh, as my current project, poetry is far more of a, of a generative metaphor in that way than, than history. I think people don't really like, a lot of people don't really like history. They don't really buy history books and, and some of them are curious about it, but, but history is easily cordoned off, separated out as back then, Mm -hmm. but something that's lively and now, Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's what, that's where scripture needs to be. Yeah. Have biblical scholars been guilty of, of cordoning off the Bible too much to back then. I think sometimes so with the historical approach, but, but not only that. And, and biblical scholars have done all kinds of other things with theology and literary approaches and stuff that, that are about immediacy and about Mm -hmm. the effect on a reader. And so that's again, that's how I begin to answer that combative. I think that's really, I think that's really compelling, at least as a beginning to an answer. And there's a lot, there's a lot there, I think for someone to consider who might have a perspective like that. Okay. In closing, Lightning round. Okay, lightning round. One question. One question. <laughs> What's one discovery you wish biblical scholarship or archaeology would make, could make? Ooh. Yeah, well, you know, I, it, it, if I had my way, I wouldn't mind knowing who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, I'm pretty sure from the movies it's Ramses II, but okay. I'd like... Well, let's just stop with that. <laughs> We've got the movie. We already know. we got multiple movies. Yul Brenner in one, and he's, you know, got a similar hairline to mine, so I, I'm amenable to that. Professor Strawn, it's been such a pleasure <laughs> talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Yeah. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode.